Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better and more just world. Without caring for and acknowledging the deep traumas faced by those who are fighting in our social movements, we risk a burnout of activists themselves and the movement as a whole. The climate justice movement is no different. The Climate Justice Coalition in South Africa is a formation of trade unions, youth, faith and community-based organizations, grassroots and independent activists and international and local non-governmental organizations brought together. CJC members are bound by the common goal of pushing forward two transformative imperatives. One, the climate justice agenda towards a just transition that leaves no one behind. And two, simultaneously working toward aspirations of justice demanded by the South African context in the face of rampant poverty, inequality, unemployment and violence. Seeing that the CJC is made up of such vibrant and diverse members, we have seen how trauma can manifest and affect our members in multiple and intersectional ways. Climate activists, like all activists, are suffering deep emotional distress by witnessing shocking and catastrophic events which cause destitution, sickness, destruction, injury and death. There is a sense of hopelessness that comes from advocating for climate justice, while big business and governments continue to make dangerous climate decisions that further accelerate the crisis. Trauma is not dispersed equally. Black, non-black people of color, women and queer climate activists shoulder the greater trauma load. Understanding that trauma is felt in the body, we want to create climate justice movements that are caring to make the movement a space of healing. This means we have to draw on the bodies of work of critical race theorists and intersectional feminists and suffuse the movement with radical care, kinship, rest and pleasure. My name is Ferin Pedro and I'm a senior campaigner at 350africa.org, a member of the Climate Justice Coalition, where I convene the Energy and Mining Justice Working Group. Today on Just Us and the Climate, I'm talking to Mbali Baduza. Mbali is the CEO of Constitutional Hill Trust and the Deputy Secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. Her work combines law and activism to achieve substantive equality and social justice in South Africa. I'm also joined by Shazia Ibrahim. Shazia is the Digital and Communication Specialist at the Climate Justice Coalition. She previously ran an activist media incubator at the Accountability Lab. Then we have Gabriel Klaassen joining us from Cape Town. Gabriel is a program manager at African Climate Alliance as well as communications coordinator at Project 90 by 2030. There, their skill of information dissemination is harnessed and used for knowledge, growth and movement building in the climate and social justice space. They are also noted as one of Mail and Guardian 200 Young South Africans 2021 in the environmental category. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So great to have three young climate activists to talk to today about a really serious issue. But before we get into discussing trauma, mental health, being an activist, surviving as an activist, mm -hmm. thriving as an activist, is it possible? <laughs> yes, it, it is. is. We're trying. <laughs> I thought we'd start off with a quick, fun question. So if you had 
a magic wand to change one thing in the world, what would you change? No pleasure, whatever comes to your mind, what would you change? Mbali, can we start with you? Sure. I have a Miss South Africa answer. Um, <laughs> child hunger, I would stop that completely. Yeah. You win, you're Miss South Africa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> okay. Uh, Shazia, what would you say? Maybe on the same theme as Mbali, but I would have a wealth cap, no more billionaires. We're yeah. done with them. <laughs> Thank you, Shazia. No billionaires. I can get on board with that. And Gabriel, what would you say is your one thing you'd w- wish away or change? Mm. I think, I'd, yeah, I think I take a similar approach, but I'd wave my magic wand to create deep systemic change um, mm. because then it kind of alters all of those items, but also the things that we didn't touch on. I mean, it's a magic wand after all. <laughs> yeah, use the full potential of the magic wand. I think that's a really good answer. My answer was going to be, I would like it. Nobody can lie. Like everybody has to tell the truth. (laughs) And I can definitely see the cons to that because sometimes lying is very helpful. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, if like governments and people in power had to tell the truth, we'd probably be better off. Absolutely. I think a net benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. That was fun. Well, I enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) We did too. Okay, but anyway, so that was fun. And I think a good segue into what we're going to be talking about, because I think one of the things that I struggle with as an activist and have for many years is to um, have guilt-free pleasure, guilt-free mm. fun, feeling like I should be using all my time to be as productive as possible because so many things rest on my shoulder, just me alone. Mm. And having community and having yeah movements to be part of has definitely helped help me with that. So moving on then to the meat of our discussion today, the first question I wanted to ask you is about this feeling of betrayal. Mm. So often people, when they talk about their relationship with the South African government or leaders, people talk in sort of intellectual or quite practical terms. But actually, the feeling of betrayal is a deeply emotional experience. It's quite a visceral experience. It's one of the more intense human experiences to be betrayed. So I wanted to find out from you, do you feel betrayed by the South African government or our leaders or people in power? Do you feel held hostage by indifference, ineptitude, failure to deliver, just constant disappointment? Is that mm. something that you relate to? Yeah. We'll start off with you, Shazia. How do I say this? Absolutely. Mm. In, in every way possible. I feel like there's such a complete breakdown of trust. I just don't trust any of our leaders. I don't trust them to do what they're supposed to do because they're not doing what they're supposed to do in every single aspect. I mean, whether it's just seeing how dirty the streets are, whether it's seeing just this load shedding crisis, whether it's continually visiting communities for years and years and seeing that nothing has changed. It's just, yeah, it's, it's this feeling of betrayal and, and just, that they don't care at all. And so there's also like an anger behind that. Mbali, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, the use of the term betrayal is pointed, isn't it? I'm glad you asked this question because 
the first time I encountered the concept of betrayal in reference to leadership and governance was from Dr. Garrett Barnwell, who provided an expert report for the Cancel Coal case on the impacts of the climate crisis on the mental health of young people. He talks about institutional betrayal, which he explains as when communities are dependent on the government to meet their needs, including health and safety, and instead the government perpetuates harm. This then creates a breach of trust and contributes to trauma. It is no wonder people mistakenly confuse the failings of the state as the failings of the constitution. People are exposed to indignity and the unconstitutional state of affairs as a lived reality. For example, the state knows that the high felt in Bumalanga and the Val are danger zones because of the level of dirty air and declared them high priority areas. Despite their own studies confirming that air pollution is causing ill health and thousands of premature deaths, the state and industry continue without mitigation to emit beyond the minimum emission standards, which are lower than international standards recommended by the WHO. So it's disgraceful behavior and it should be criminal. The betrayal is to the highest degree. Yeah, so in short, yes, <laughs> I feel betrayed. <laughs> yeah, I feel, I think even more betrayed after listening to both of you. Um, when we talk about these issues, it makes us sad, but I think it's really important that we figure out how to process it and live healthily and happily um, while doing the work that needs to be done. Mm. And some of that means getting support from professionals, from our communities, from religious leaders. Gabriel, do you think psychologists or people who are doing sort of mental health support need to be climate aware in order to properly serve climate activists in particular? I think that question is, is one that doesn't get asked enough in these spaces. Um, we need to acknowledge the fact that when it comes to mental well-being, it's not just your physical environment, you know, it's it's your mental environment, it's the space that you exist in, in all the different elements. And climate change, unfortunately, affects all of those spaces, <laughs> despite many denialists holding a torch at the end of the night. I think any doctor or practitioner needs to take into account climate justice or climate change um, so that they can properly diagnose and support the persons asking for support. I think there's already such a big stigma around mental health in South Africa and around the world as a whole. Uh, if you add on top of that the mass denialism of climate change, um, despite the realities that many people face on the ground, we, we can't afford for our practitioners to ignore it. You know, in order to properly diagnose someone, you need to know all the facts. You need to know the circumstances that they're coming from. If you know, cool, this person is living in this environment, not only socially, but environmentally. I now know how to talk to you and work with you and walk you through it. Mm. And so I think there's a definite need for our practitioners in, in wellness, mental wellness to, to really take in kind of the climate justice knowledge, climate information to become climate literate, mm. even if it's just the bare minimum, so to speak. 
Um, I think it would help their patients a lot more. It will help break a few generational curses along the way as well. Um, and really just destigmatize mental health um, one step at a time, I think. Can I jump in there? Yes, please. Yeah, I think psychologists can support climate justice activists by being allies or activists themselves by joining climate justice movements. Uh, psychologists should stand witness to the struggle for climate justice. After all, it's a fight for everyone. And context is everything. Where experience is the best teacher for understanding, similar to what Gabriel was saying. Um, you know, you have to understand who you're talking to, uh, meet people where they're at. And an armchair practice in psychology in the context of this climate emergency will do little to enable uh, good mental health for activists. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with that. And I love, Gabriel, how you put it, like they have to understand our context to be able to walk through it with us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How are you going yeah. to do that if mm-hmm. you don't really get the full picture? Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that goes for many different, you know, systemic problems that we have. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, one of them, an existential one, being uh, the climate emergency. Shazia, I wanted to ask you, how has trauma, if at all, manifested for you in its multiple and intersectional ways while in or outside the climate justice movement? Sure. So that's a, yeah, that's an intense one. I think as activists, something that I struggle with is that we're building towards a future that we might never see. Mm. So we're working towards something, but we don't even know. We will never see the fruits of our labor, and, but we see our labor and we feel our labor, right? Mm. Every day. So sometimes what I feel is this feeling of hopelessness. Like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm trying so hard and I'm doing all of these things, which I think will make a difference, but I don't know what that difference is. So I would say there's there's that feeling of hopelessness. I mean, based on just if it doesn't mind jumping in quickly, just on what you've said there, Shazi, I think the way it kind of really manifests is quite diverse because I mean before you become an activist, I mean my my own kind of path, before I became an activist, I faced, you know, many other traumas, you know, emotional, physical traumas, you know, whether that be um, assault, whether that be, you know, violence, um, that you've either, that I've either had done onto me or witnessed in my communities. And that's something that you come into the movement with. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's oftentimes a catalyst for bringing change. And it's one of my catalysts for being an activist. And then you join and you think, cool, I'm fighting against all of what I've experienced and others have experienced only to have more piled on top of it, you know? You're like, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm fighting for it, I'm fighting against it. And then you're met at the dead kind of black kind of hole, and you're like, wow, I guess I'm really spiraling now. And oftentimes it's very difficult to explain that in your kind of circles when, you know, only in recent years have my parents really taken into account mental health. And so, like, growing up, in a house with them was quite hectic because <laughs> how do you justify how you're feeling when they can't see it? That's kind of how it's manifested a little bit with me. I mean, being someone who's, who's, who's queer, being someone who's non-binary, being someone who has, you know, is brown in South Africa, living in a community for most of my life that is underserved. 
and then saying, cool, now I'm going to go and double down and go and meet all of those, those challenges in the forefront and stand alongside fellow activists. If we talk about just a, a practical example of standing in the forefront, it's like going, for example, last year I went to COP27 and I was in a, in a country where I couldn't be me. I had to literally say, cool. I mean, I, I, I just have, you know, I was the straightest person you've ever met. Oh my God, you, you would have been like, wow, who is this? <laughs> who is this? Wow. Um, yeah, like I, I hid entire areas of myself mm. that I worked through over my years to say, cool, I'm allowed to be this. I'm allowed to feel this. And then I had to push that under so I can be in a space that other activists couldn't be in. Then coming back from COP27, which is supposed to be a space inclusive for all, and I couldn't even speak about it for about a month yeah. because you, you, you're faced with the reality that there are, there are, there are individuals there in Egypt that can't just go home like I did. You know, they are still locked up. They are going to be in trouble. That's why there were such so little activists from Egypt present at COP. And so I think when we talk about the way that trauma manifests, when we talk about the way that trauma manifests, I think we have to take into account the in and the out of climate justice movement. It's what baggage you come into the room with and what capacity you have to take more on. Yeah. Yo, I relate to so much of what you just said. Mm -hmm. Mbali, what do you think? Do you think the intersectional identities that you hold make experiencing these various traumas better or worse? Or Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I love everything about myself. It's been a journey to get here, but I'm here and there's no going back. Um, I love being queer. I love being back. I love being a woman. I love being young. Um, and these are identities I subscribe to and also that are imposed on me. The thing about each of them is they are a fight. <laughs> some separate, some times together. Um, it's a minefield and it's, it's, it's heavy. In spaces that I find myself, I can never just be me. Um, and, not to mention, you know, with the climate crisis, how these identities are particularly vulnerable and, you, you know, you, you feel like you just can't catch break. So it's it's definitely much worse, um, in my opinion, uh, in my experience, it's much worse. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, re I relate to that, the, the extra challenge and this idea of having to constantly fight. My mother's always telling me to choose my battles. Mm -hmm. Like my Oma and Opa aren't the people to like insist on the pronouns being correct. Like maybe that's not the time. But I think that there's also something beautiful in what Gabriel said around the value of those um experiences and those struggles I think we're a community of people that care deeply for other people. Mm -hmm. And that comes also from some of our experiences of not being cared for yeah. or not yeah. being included. So it, it means that we really care about making sure that people feel included and cared for. Shazia, mm -hmm. what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I like what Gabriel said 
we bring our whole selves to the movement mm-hmm. and that comes with a whole lot of baggage. I guess from my perspective, my first encounters with activism was in the student movement and then the, the feminist movement, the anti-GBV movement. So, I mean, even being part of those two movements, there are a whole lot of it's like a whole host of trauma that you face from being part of those movements that you never have the time to work through because guess what? There's always something that's pressing. There's always mm-hmm. something there's, that's urgent. And it sometimes feels selfish to take care of yourself or to say, you know what? I actually can't sit in this meeting or that caucus because I honestly viscerally can't do it. So then there's that feeling of guilt that you feel. And I think for me, I come from quite a conservative community from the South African Muslim community. And then I have that same experience as you, Farron, where people are telling me to pick my battles, Mm. but I can't just sit there and feel like I'm being disrespected and the people that I'm in solidarity with are being disrespected and we're just going to form community here. Mm. So that's something that I also struggle with. I also think we need to just problematize why community always has to be kumbaya. You know, we actually have to confront things uh, to be better. Um, So picking our battles, mm, I think that's a bit of a cop out. Well, I I mean, it's a a struggle, but it's also, it can be a preservation mechanism, Mm -hmm. right? Like, (laughs) Like the idea that I mean, goodness, if I didn't do that and what she was seeing, for example, my mother, for example, was a sort of burnout and mm, a, and a constantly mm, feeling drained and mm. a constantly feeling disappointed yeah. and frustrated and yeah, losing faith in people, yeah. um, and their capacity to be good. And I think also ignoring quite a lot of contexts, mm. you know, that people have access to information at different dates, have access to other kinds of communities at different dates. So it is a, it's a, such a tricky balance. I do not have the answer for this, um, <laughs> except to say that I definitely relate to absolutely everything that you're saying. To move on to a positive note, like we've spoken a lot about the problems and how difficult it is, but I know that you are all committed activists and you spend a lot of time and energy, emotional energy, being part of movements, fighting for what you think is possible. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't. You'd just be in bed, which I found myself being sometimes. (laughs) Um, But you do get out of bed, which is excellent because we need you. How do you think we can help alleviate young climate activists' trauma so that they can effectively be part of a movement without burning out? Mm. Start with you, Gabriel. Firstly, just I think it was beautiful what, like you said, Dembali earlier was just acknowledging the fact that your different positionalities are in the forefront. That's one of the first steps in kind of ensuring that young climate activists or young activists aren't exposed to the same issues that we face. It's just acknowledging that Bali wouldn't choose to be black, queer, this, that, this, that, you know, if it's meaning that you're at the forefront of injustice. Mm -hmm. And so it's breaking that idea that you choose to be in injustice. No one chooses to be in, in, in injustice. I think it's acknowledging that we find ourselves in these spaces because of who we are, 
but that they don't define us. Mm. The solutions can define how we move forward. Mm. I mean, and then I love I love the kind of point about taking a bit of a break. You know, the word retreat. <laughs> you know, it sounds like. It sounds like you're losing, but it's not a loss. Just think about you go on a, like a wellness retreat. You're retreating. You're going back so you can move forward stronger. You know, I hate the, I hate war analogies. I'm going to stick with that one, but <laughs> it's preparing yourself for the next step. And right now in South Africa, and I mean the broader climate justice movement, I'm watching quite a few young people at the edge. Um, I, I'm predicting at least three burnouts by the end of the year, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but we can't tell people don't do that. What we can do is we can put forward systems and structures to support them. And I think we're on the good track. The fact that this conversation is being had, the fact that people are acknowledging mental wellness on a deeper level is already such a, a miracle. I mean, growing up, I would have loved to have a network of people who are supportive. Mm. And I think other than that, other ways that we can help young climate activists or young activists in general is being there genuinely. Mm. I'm so sick and tired of people being there so that they can claim the growth of that activist. <laughs> We need to be there for that activist so that they can make their decisions as they want to, so that they can fall and get up as they need to. I mean, I've experienced burnout because of my many hats in the climate justice space. And, you know, it's very scary to know that you don't have that support. Mm. And so I think just being there, just a genuine sense of being there. And being able to direct young people to spaces of help. That's how we can, that's how we can support them. Yeah. And I think what's important there also is that you can only really be there for somebody if you've done quite a lot of internal work. Mm -hmm. So it also means uh, prioritizing your own healing and dealing with, you know, it's not just young people that are dealing with traumas. Yeah. We have, mm -hmm. In, enormous intergenerational trauma so that means that if we're going to be there for young people also have to you know as an older person myself we also have to do quite a lot of work mm. um, to overcome that Shazia what would you say to young activists in what are the tips and tricks <laughs> of ways in which you can manage inside of a traumatic space like uh, that we've that we find ourselves in yeah, sure. I mean, I think that being part of the Climate Justice Coalition, especially the core secretariat, we have a very great space where we can create the movements that we wanted to be in when we were younger and vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? So we can make rest a practice. Mm -hmm. We can make care for each other a practice. We can involve dancing and singing and making posters together as part of the things that we do. Because as much as I can say, take some time off if you can't do what you need to do, um, just take a break. 
if you're if you're in a movement or if you're in a space where people expect that from you it can be very difficult you know it, you can you can experience a lot of conflict just trying to take care of yourself mm. so i think the position we're in where we can create those movements is an important one and one that i hope we succeed in yeah and i think the challenge that people have faced cuz i don't think any of this is malicious mm-hmm. but it's come out of uh, a challenge of capacity like mm-hmm. there's almost always something more to do there are people in um that are really really suffering and then especially if you're sort of relatively privileged to feel like you're taking a break uh feels a bit like you know like a cop out like not you know choosing a battle um that you should be choosing but i don't think anybody inside of the movement would ask if people to sacrifice themselves like mm. all of themselves mm. right. and that's what i've that's what i've been able to hold on to it's like this break is for the movement this yes. is the movement's break yes. <laughs> because if not because i can sustain myself better if i take a break and i and am joyful and even when it feels a bit uncomfortable sometimes mm-hmm. there's discomfort in that but that's just something i have to manage and sit with yeah yeah, yeah. Mbali? well as leaders we must walk the talk if we know what it takes to evade burnout um we must practice those tools out loud uh you know by taking a break cultivating the ability to self reflect um go to therapy exercise eat sleep and most importantly ask for help i mean if we as leaders are seen to be asking for help and it's, it's it it enables others to do the same and on a more systemic and institutional level um we must infuse mental health and well-being practices into the work and our structures one of the things i admire most about the climate justice coalition is that we take seriously the health of our members and for example in january and december no coalition work um that's that's being intentional so practice 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 yeah and i think one of my big frustrations on uh energy twitter is <laughs> like the false dichotomy that people make between renewable energy and jobs yeah and i think there's a similar false dichotomy in movement spaces between caring a lot and doing good work and rest mm, right yeah. that's a false the the notion that if you don't rest you'll do better work to me in my life experience has shown shown to be very much false mm-hmm. if you can go into something purposefully with intention and with energy and give it the thought and focus and clarity of mind that it deserves can do some really amazing work so it doesn't mean that because you care about rest and joy and play that you also are not deeply interested in doing the very important urgent work that needs to be done to build our movement and fight for uh, a genuinely transformative just transition mm-hmm. so thank you and i've seen you three do that <laughs> as an older activist <laughs> I, i i learned so much from the many young wonderful comrades i have in the climate justice coalition so thank you so much for this thank you thanks everyone thank you thank you everybody This is such an important conversation for us to have and I'm so happy that we're talking about it on the Just Us and the Climate podcast. 
I know that there's incredible difficulty and challenges in being an activist for climate justice, but there are also so many reasons to be hopeful. And being part of a movement, being part of the Climate Justice Coalition, you see so many wonderful activists doing incredible work, sometimes with very little resources, but able to achieve great things in their communities. And that is why being part of a movement is so incredibly beneficial to the mental health of activists, ultimately, because um, you can lean on each other, talk to each other, have fun together, and have conversations like this, which have been really helpful to me, and I'm sure to many of the people listening. If you are struggling with your mental health at the moment, um, there are some resources available. Uh, we have linked to some of those resources in the episode description. So click on that or reach out to us. One of the ways to get in touch with us is to go to our website, climatejusticecoalition.org. There you'll find all of our different activities, but also our contact information and ways for you to get involved in the different campaigns of the coalition or its members. Um, it was great to be here today and we look forward to talking to you on the next episode of Just Us and the Climate. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production of the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the coalition and our work to advance climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it widely. The more people it reaches, the more we can help grow the movement for climate justice. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Open Society Foundation. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.